This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Laura Marney, and it's my great pleasure today to introduce Jerry Hassan and Leslie Riddick to you. Um, now, there's a few housekeeping things before um, we start. There's a, an exit there, and an exit there, as they do in the aeroplanes. And this might be a good time to turn your phone off, if you've, if you've forgotten to turn it off. Although, if you want to turn it to silent, when we, we lift the lights up, um, you're allowed to tweet. So we're, we're, we're very 21st century here. So if you want to tweet, tweet away. We're happy for you to do that. Um, and um, if you have another event after this, don't worry, we'll run to time and you'll, you'll be able to get out in plenty of time to get to your next event. So I would discourage anyone from leaving before we're actually finished. That, that sounds like it's a negative remark. I don't mean it that way at all. <laughs> anyway, so the format for the next uh, 55 minutes is I'll give you a bit of information on each of our authors and their books, and then I'll invite them to give you a reading or a talk, and then finally we'll get the chance to ask them some questions. Um, so I'll tell you a bit, uh, firstly, about Leslie, and I'm sure you know quite a lot about her already. As well as being Scotland's most famous PhD student, Leslie Riddoch is a well-known... <laughs> You didn't know that, eh? <laughs> it's a well-known award-winning broadcaster, writer and journalist. She writes for The Scotsman and The Sunday Post and is a regular contributor to The Guardian, Newsnight Scotland and Scotland Tonight. She's founder and director of Nordic Horizons, a policy group that brings Nordic experts into the Scottish Parliament. She presented You and Yours on Radio 4, The Midnight Hour on BBC Two and The People's Parliament and Powerhouse on Channel 4. She founded the Scottish feminist magazine Harpies and Quines, won, yes. <laughs> won two Sony Awards and edited The Scotswoman, another yes. The famous 1995 edition of The Scotsman, exclusively written and edited by its female staff. Her second book, Blossom, which she'll discuss with us today, is a debate on what it might take to make Scotland blossom. It's been described as making a clear, coherent case for community ownership and more devolution at local level, and a heartfelt manifesto for a better de uh, democracy. So I'm now turning to Jerry, who's another well-kent face and also Renaissance man. As a writer, commentator, political analyst and lecturer, he contributes to many of the same media as Leslie, The Scotsman, Newsnight Scotland, Good Morning Scotland, and also Open Democracy. Jerry's previous titles include Radical Scotland, Arguments for Self-Determination, After Independence and The Strange Death of Labour. <laughs> Good title. But it's his book Caledonia Dreaming that we're here to talk about today. The book cuts through the comforting Scottish myths and outlines a prospectus for Scotland to embrace radical and far-reaching change. Polly Toynbee says, in this clever book there are tougher questions to consider than a mere yes-no. It's been described as a bracing, searching, discomforting and ultimately exhilarating book. And I hope when you hear Jerry speak, you'll agree with that assessment. So take it away, Jerry. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for that, uh, and thanks everyone uh, for coming. Um, it's, it's great to be doing a talk with Leslie because we've been um, 
in this in this moment in Scotland, we've been crisscrossing the roads and the highways and byways of Scotland, and uh, you know there is something interesting going on. And I'm going to try and in this very short time um, illuminate why why we're here, um, what it is, and kind of some some questions. So where are we and where are we going? I'm going to try and address this at a kind of Scottish level, and and kind of what's going on uh, in terms of Britain because this isn't just a Scottish debate; it's also uh, an international uh, debate as well. Caledonian Dreaming, uh, just to be clear, uh, I didn't write it to write a book on, on independence referendum. I wanted to write a book about what is happening, why we are here and where we're going. Kind of the, the bigger backstory to the independence uh, referendum and, and the kind of wider canvas, the referendum as a product of a society changing and how I think there's unintended as well as intended consequences from that um, as acting as a, as a further um, catalyst. And I also wanted to acknowledge, because I think there has been, and it's still there, a profoundly narrow sense of what is political in, in Scotland that is about parties, that is about uh, expert opinion, that is about authority. You know, you have authority to speak on an issue. I wanted to get beyond that a bit and talk about the, the power of the personal and stories, because we're all, we're all here through various influences, backgrounds, the, 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 you know, the backstory of our parents. You know, even, even John Curtis, if I can just pose a revolutionary thought, did not arrive into the world as a fully finished sophologist talking about you know, the swing. There's a story there about, about a liberal man in the 1960s and his shock at Biafra and, and the British state's um, collusion in what was happening in Biafra in the Nigerian war and, and Vietnam and then got into liberal with a small L politics because of that. So my parents, I, I, I devote the whole chapter to my parents, which is always a bit scary because it's like making public something that is private and where you draw that line. So obviously I have a little bit of you know, negotiation about that with myself. But my parents, Jean and Eddie, um, who were wonderful, loving parents, I think in some ways some of their story is typical to a large part of Scotland. They were working class, self-educated, deeply connected and caring about the world um, and other people. And they believed in a couple of things that were a part of that post-war generational story. They believed the future was going to get better. They believed in social change. They believed the world would get better. They believed for kids like me, working class kids, you'd have more opportunity. You'd have, you studied hard, you worked hard, you'd get a job that wasn't like their jobs, that had more choice than they had combined with their optimism and their curiosity in the world. And they also profoundly believed in, I pause, Britain. They believed in the idea of Britain as a platform for bringing that about. And I think those three pillars were a story of a large part of post-war Scotland. Indeed, they're part of a British story. And I think they're all, all in trouble now. The future, the way it's told to us by politicians, it's scary. You know, social change is about taking away rights we thought we'd won. And believing in Britain, well, you know, what is, what is there to believe in? It's not exactly a better tomorrow from uh, better together. So, so where are we? I don't think yes and no are actually as black and white as the, the narrow, narrow kind of casting of uh, the BBC and STV in the formal politics. This isn't a 19th century version of high modernity and absolute sovereignty. It's actually two versions of Scotland that are about the world we live in, that are about what some people would call 
late modernity, a phrase I don't really like, but, it's, but to signify it's different from that 19th century notion of the nation state. That means both are about shared sovereignties, both are about ambiguity, and both are fuzzy and messy. Although you'd, you know, you'd be guessing to think that from some of, the, some of the debates and say Salmond and Darwin last week. Both are actually versions of change and continuity at the same time. This isn't that old-fashioned politics, except, of course, in style um, and tone. I don't think the debate's completely about nationalism, although there's a Scottish nationalism and there's a British nationalism. It's also about the question of the robustness, the viability, how much we actually are social democrats, how we, how we implement our values collectively and how we make a link between actions and, and words. Because in Scotland, many places, you know, think of educational opportunity, think of what's happening in terms of how unequal we are, there's a profound disjuncture between actions and words that isn't just about Westminster or, or Tories. But I think this longer story is about Scotland changing in many ways, not all of course, but in many ways for the better. It's less hierarchical, institutional change is less what drives things. There is, there's more a sense of the authority, what it means, power is in flux and changing that high Scotland, uh, what Gordon Brown actually calls high-minded Scotland in his book, and he doesn't mean that as a good thing, he means high-minded as we know what, you know, we're telling you what to do, we know better. That old entitlement Scotland is declining in places significantly, but it's clinging on in others. And there's a new DIY culture emerging, which is people, often young, saying, I have authority, I don't need to wait for permission, I can do this, I can set up a campaign. So it's generational, it's gendered, it's an informal politics, and it's driven by, to some extent, not all, social media. And actually, this is a Scottish story about a whole European and Western phenomenon. In Greece, in Spain, in Italy, people are saying, you know, we don't trust politicians to do our politics, to trust them to look after our society, to protect the gains that people made. We want to do some of this ourselves. We need to rethink things like the state um, and authority. And I think there's a problem in this with Britain, the word we need to talk about. The inequality, the second most indebted nation in the OECD, the problem of uh, London. These things are not just about the coalition or the failures of the Blair government or there's 30 years of post-war Labour government total. They're about the real project fear, which isn't the secret name or not so secret and better together. In the Times today, which I don't know if some of you saw, majority of Britons feel threatened by terrorists. The, the Times reports positively, positively and gleefully nearly, that 80% plus of British citizens feel threatened by Islamic terrorism. Where is the Scottish public response from the SNP, from Labour, from, from everyone in public life? to that making of that toxic public condition. We, ha we have not spoken loudly uh, enough on that. And I think there's a disturbing disconnection in Scotland, in this debate, in this movement of um, opinion between the official and unofficial uh, life in Scotland, between the actual and the abstract. Much as I want to believe in a different Scotland, that, that's the subtitle of my book, The Quest for a Different Scotland, which is in a way about imagination and dreaming and the negatives of Anglo-American capitalism. There's a problem there. Just think of this. There's this democratic impulse happening, implosion, 
ex excitement, people dreaming different futures. But what's happening in official, formal parts of Scotland? Increasing centralisation of Scottish government, of Scottish public bodies. We now live in a Scotland where in small villages in the Highlands, armed police walk up and down our streets. There was no public debate on that. There was no parliamentary vote. So we need to acknowledge we can dream, we can hope, but there's this disjuncture going on. There's a sense of loss in some places, uncertainty, uh, even incomprehension in some parts of Scotland, pro-union voters, older people, and that needs to be heard. That needs to be listened to. We need to understand why some people fear uh, the, the debate. They find it threatening. They find it um, intimidating. So I'm just going to conclude with what I think the debate should be about, and in fact I think is about, and this is Fintan O'Toole. Fintan O'Toole, um, some of you will be aware, wrote two fantastic books about Ireland after the crash, in which he challenged the myths of Irish society, believing it was a republic, etc., you know, anti-colonialist, which really inspired me about, about Scottish myths and, and challenging those. And Fintan was kind enough to write an introduction to my book. And this is from something he wrote earlier, which, which set me off on this journey, where he talks about what, what should this debate be about? Is it about, you know, the economy? Is it about, you know, um, a different kind of society? Is it about, a fu you know, full powers to the parliament? And so Fintan says about Scottish independence and where we are. This is a real choice. The options are not economic misery under the Union or permanent boom times under independence. They lie more in the realm of collective psychology. Do you want to have the safety net of an old enemy to rage at when policies don't work and the world turns mean? Or do you prefer to look at yourself in the mirror in all your glories and all your stupidities. And that's where I think this debate is. The missing question, the missing dimension of the psychologies, the hopes, and yes, the fears, because fear is a legitimate part of this debate. And Scotland is changing, but what form does that take? How do we link the constitutional to the non-constitutional? A debate that actually spans the world in what's called new constitutionalism, how economic rights, social rights, are linked to the making of a people, and a constitution. And what on earth do we do about Britain? What do we do about the unequal kingdom that is Britain, about the people who don't have voice in England? Whatever way we go, what do we do about trying to make across these isles a better Britain, a better kind of pan or post-Britain that actually is about challenging the ghastly version that we live on this island with? So thank you. Thank you very much, Jerry. And I think it's now time for Leslie to take the stage. Well, helicopters overhead. This is just like home. <laughs> <laughs> or at least where I grew up, Northern Ireland, Belfast, in 1973. It's funny how it takes you back so quickly. You're in helicopters all the time. And I wonder why they're here. Um, I <laughs> Um, I should say as well that uh, I, I'm not sure if, if, uh, if anybody has heard of this cursed PhD I'm doing, which compares the hut traditions of Scotland and Norway. They're always weird, folks. Um, but the man who's actually finished it and is a doctor is Jerry Hassan, actually, so I'm hugely, uh, hugely admiring of that. Um, Blossom was really written, uh, it sort of came into mind before the referendum was actually called, and it probably it comes from the kind of... Um, puzzle that everybody in the room has about this country. Um, it has just an almost embarrassment of riches. 
um, incredible natural resources, incredible renewable energy, incredible landscape. And as somebody who was uh, taken uh, from Belfast to Wick in one day on holiday for 16 summers from Belfast, before the A9 was duelled, before there was a bridge over any of those firths, we went for our summer holidays to visit our grandparents in uh, Wick and at a road junction in Bavshire for the entire duration. So we saw a lot of Scotland when, to my mind, puzzlingly, a lot of Scots didn't. Um, and it was very, very clear. I mean, when we got to Wick, the Wickers could point at the Pentland Firth if they could see it and say, you know, the top six tidal stream sites in Europe are in that Firth. And that was in the days when, popularly across Scotland, we were told the only energy that uh, Caithness folk were interested in was nuclear energy. But everybody knew, everybody knows what the capacity of this country is. It is the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. It is. And you'd think with all of that and with the most spectacular scenery in perhaps part northern Europe, yep, I'll go for it and have an argument. I'll be through there later, anyone that wants to have it. With all of that going for it, the people who inhabit such a country should be healthy, wealthy and wise, should they not? And are we? <laughs> now, you know, we don't need to rehearse all the difficulties about health. They're shameful. We have sub-East European health outcomes in parts of Glasgow. We have a Scottish effect whereby everybody who's Scottish is dying younger than their counterparts in the rest of the UK. We scored F for fitness last month in a European league table. We are troglodytes like this. We are indoors nearly all the time when our neighbours are outdoors. Why? And I've been trying to square this all up and really the book is a response to that. And it, it goes through quite a lot of different uh, things that most people don't cover. I feel that uh, academics have, have not paid attention enough to housing, for example, as a really important thing. Um, land as another absolutely important thing that conditions an acceptance of loss of power. That conditions for all of us who've got that kind of ancientness in our families where we always expected someone else somewhere else to be in charge. That takes a long time to come out of the system. Um, so there's a template in Britain, in Scotland, um, a top-down democracy. In fact, with some of the outcomes in terms of our voting, 30%, 32% at local government elections, a weak democracy, actually. An elitist society where small groups expect to uh, control a lot of power, land perfect example in scotland this democracy 16 people own 10 percent of scotland today we only got round to formally abolishing feudalism in scotland what 12 12 years ago so you know there there is this template and the question is do we want to dislodge it or are we just really going to accommodate it for you know the rest of my adult life i hope the answer is a resounding no but politicians are not picking up these themes, only after extreme pressure. So I wanted to read a wee bit from the book, mostly because I've been doing quite a lot of meetings and ending up talking a lot, uh, as it were, um, ad-libbing. So it's kind of a wee treat to be at a book festival where there's a lectern and you could actually read something for once. And perhaps this is a bit I don't talk about so much from the book, which is actually about culture. Um, it picks up from the argument there was when you remember Alistair Gray wrote an article talking about colonists and settlers 
which was, I felt, quite the, the titles at least, quite divisive and loaded, probably deliberately so, but raising a very important question. Um, in this piece, I should hasten to add, somehow there is mention of Gary Tank Commander, Dirty Dancing, and the Monarch of the Glen. So it's a mixed bag. Is there a disproportionate number of non-Scots in top jobs, particularly in culture and the environment? It seems strange that merely asking the question has prompted immediate cries of anti-English racism. Most nations monitor the distribution of benefit. It's the only way to counter elitism and understand the impact of public policy. So this is where Gary Tank Commander comes in, a 2012 BBC Scotland sitcom in which a bunch of soldiers find ways to pass time in the unglamorous surroundings of a Glasgow barracks waiting to do service in combat uh, in defence of Queen and country. How many people have seen Gary Tank Commander? Right, the rest of you should have a look. The first two series were stoters. Anyway, in one episode, the eponymous hero holds up a small orange and asks if it's a clementine, a tangerine or a satsuma. No, he concludes... It's just a wee orange. <laughs> They're all just wee oranges. Now, this either prompts a laugh or you don't get it. Scots don't see much value in learning the tiny differences between exotic objects. Instead, they save their energies for the vigorous use of metaphor. Thus, you might be thinking, see this argument, see mince. <laughs> but can a leader, a top person or a manager really be someone who defiantly calls mandarins wee oranges in the upper echelons of society? Can you say I in a Scottish court without being done for contempt? It did happen in 1993. Can Scots confidently bring their whole selves into the limelight and particularly into the highly contested domains of arts and the environment where proper sounding people abound? This is where Dirty Dancing comes in. I'm not ashamed to admit, well, I am a bit, that this is my favourite film, and not just because of the late Patrick Swayze. The best line in the film was the exchange between the cringingly named baby and her dad after she confessed to having a fling with Pat. You lied too, she said. You told me everyone has the same chance in life, everyone deserves to be treated equally, but you didn't mean everyone. You just meant people like you. And that, of course, is the moment kids grow up, when they realise adults say a lot of things they don't actually mean. Life should be fair. In practice, it isn't. Boundaries and limits are quickly established. Learned behaviour helps to firm up that place in life. And peer group policing takes over. Thus, girls can do whatever they want at school, as long as they all wear pink anoraks. Kids from back streets can make it to the top, as long as they lose unsuitable friends and accents. And Scots can mumble away about those obscure-sounding people and places that have inspired them and still get top jobs, except they don't. If this was easy to measure or remedy, Scots would have cracked inferiorism, a problem observed across the world where less dominant communities hesitate before asserting or developing their own values. So, of course, it's impossible to say what proportion of top appointees should be Scots. Impossible to prescribe and undesirable. The last thing appropriate in this mongrel nation would be a state-prescribed monoculture of inevitably synthetic Scottishness to replace the current and decidedly synthetic model of Britishness. But the question remains. 
Is Scottish culture in the hands of Scots? It's a subjective argument, but that doesn't make it any less important, just much, much more sensitive. Before devolution, the average Scot stood on the sidelines and watched for decades, maybe centuries, as people with different habits, accents, vocabulary, cultural preferences, reading material, university backgrounds, and presumptions about life, almost all got Scotland's top jobs. Of course, some of those leadership voices were educated Scots. But educated in what? Scottishness? Indeed, what is that, anyway? Strangely, I've never heard Scottish culture described better than by a Yorkshireman I once interviewed for a Radio 4 programme. Church of Scotland Minister Robert Pickles had headed to Fife 20 years earlier and still admired what he called the Scottish mentality. And this is a quote from him. Celts live for the day, not money. It's not what you've got, but who you're related to and who you know. Scots are family-oriented and they're people with many layers. Scots are like oil. There's a lot more going on underground. There's a spirituality here I love and less of a fuss about material things because there's an understanding of a, of a more fundamental connectedness. Music and art evoke very deep feelings. Celtic knotwork is intricate, so are the Scots. There are fewer layers in England. Scotland has been preserved from that blandness. Life here is far richer, and in that respect, Scotland is 30 years behind, but not in a bad way. Now, I interviewed many people for that programme, and yet Robert's wistful description of the Scots' intense experience of music is the image that remained, because it rings so true. A few years earlier, I'd been sitting at the back of a packed function room in the Dark Island Hotel on Benbecula for a piping concert. A large crofter sat in front of me, a freshly washed and starched-looking white shirt drawn tight as a barrel across his massive back, and damp hair fresh from the shower, further evidence of the importance he attached to this event. As the lone piper started to play, pacing slowly up and down the room, the great back of the crofter swayed and heaved. At some moments he was softly singing along, at another moment, quietly, he wiped away a tear, and he was not alone. Surely this easy and emotional response to traditional music is one of Scotland's most authentic cultural legacies. And yet, despite several lifetimes effort by traditional musicians, it's still the poor relation for funding compared to Victorian art forms. That has some upsides. The voluntary effort needed to sustain the Gaelic fashion movement, for example, has become part of its spontaneous, unstuffy charm. A group of Sami writers from Arctic Norway I guided round Sky was astonished by an unrehearsed impromptu performance by Talitha Mackenzie, Christine Primrose and Margaret Bennett at a Cayley in the Gallic College on Sky. And even more impressed to know that the event was not organised by a full-time music coordinator financed by the local municipality, which would have been happening back home. Local stalwart promoter Duncan McInnes snorted wryly at the very notion, not a chance. The selfless voluntarism that underpinned the Cayley was commented on for days until it was overshadowed by a crofter who came to the rescue after the tour bus unaccountably burst into flames in a car park above Talisker. Murdo arrived in a vintage bus kept for emergency school runs, drove us to lunch in Dunvegan without asking for payment, 
and afterwards persuaded a Skyways colleague to ferry us back south again. The entire trip was regarded as a precious gift, a possible demonstration of shamanic power, still very valued by Sami people, and a minor miracle. There's no doubt the voluntary effort required to keep traditional culture alive has become a vital part of its character, but it's also become an excuse for putting Scottish culture second. It wouldn't matter who was in charge if we were all singing from something like the same hymn sheet. We basically aren't. Uh, let me just turn to one last piece that fills this one through with the Monarch of the Glen. This fabulous complexity, all of it, unquestionably is Scotland's story. A massive, rich, chewy cultural heritage with a central issue grinding away at its core. Which story to choose? As the Englishman Edwin Landseer was painting the classic image of the Scottish Highlands, the monarch of the Glen in 1851, thousands of real Scots were being cleared from real hillsides to make way for deer. This idealised hunter's image of the noble beast became the classic portrait of deer in the Highlands for some. But for native Gales, <coughs> that place would always be occupied by a different man, Duncan Van McIntyre. A century earlier, he recited a poem from memory to a Pibroch pipe tune which described deer and mountain life in a very different way. In praise of Ben Doran was transcribed by the son of a neighbouring minister and later translated into English by Hugh McDiarmid and Ian Crichton Smith, who said of it, Nowhere else in Scottish poetry do we have a poem of such sunniness and grace and exactitude maintained for such a length with such a wealth of varied music and teeming richness and language. The devoted obsession, the richly concentrated gaze, the loving scrutiny, undiverted by philosophical analysis, has created a particular world, joyously exhausting area after area as the Celtic monks exhausted page after page in the Book of Kells. And yet, despite such fulsome praise from the venerated Crichton Smith, most educated Scots probably don't recognise the name of Duncan Van McIntyre, but have probably seen Landseer's monarch. Whose reality gets pride of place? The official or the unofficial? The British or the Scottish? Indeed, the Scots or the Gales? Perhaps you might think a cheerful amalgam of all outlooks and artefacts is possible. Why not let a thousand flowers blossom? After all, in the modern world, many cultures coexist enriching and enlivening one another. That's true, but choices still have to be made. For our national galleries, there's just too much to fit in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think that indeed that was it. was everything it said on the tin. Both of those talks were bracing, I felt. Um, so I want to just kind of get a bit down to the nitty-gritty. I want to kind of dig you up a wee bit about some of the things that you said, Jerry, in your book, not what you said at the, um, the lectern there. Mm -hmm. This idea that we're too poor, too small, too divided, this loser mentality, do you think it derives from a history of defeat, you know, Flodden, Darien, Culloden, all that kind of thing? And if that is the case, how can we change that mindset? You both talked about it a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in, in, in my, my book, um, I identify six myths of um, modern Scotland. And in fact, 
when I was thinking about what were the myths and, and trying to get it to six, um, trying to, you know, from the, the longer list, um, I, that I started off with kind of a, <laughs> scraps of paper on the floor. Like, ah! <laughs> um, and and the, the one I had the problem with was what you're talking about, the too divided, too poor, too be too stupid. And I thought, it's, it's there as a strand throughout our history. It's been told to us so many times, we've told it ourselves. The call I made, and I think it's, it's, it's an arguable call, is I put it not in the six myths, I put it as the myth that we, we gradually began to turn our backs on. And, and what, you, what you're absolutely right, all those facts, you know, Claudin, uh, Darien, Argentina 1978 to men of my age, you know, uh, the state of Scottish football uh, today, and, and indeed the, you know, the tyranny of football that both Leslie and I have written on um, and all that. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a deeper structural issue that then goes into psychology, which is about our... We were poor at one point, and then the relationship with the, 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 the elephant that is England being um, on, on the same island. And I, I think in the last 20, 30 years, it's, it's, it's weakened dramatically. So you have this strange debate going on at the moment that, that certain people who might use it both say, oh, yes, of course you can be independent. Nobody's t- doubting that. And at the same time, then, you know, produce figures that really are trying to question that. So I think it is weakening dramatically but all small nations in the world have big issues about about their psyche and the confidence you know the nordics anywhere you care to mention switzerland ireland iceland and so there's there's a scottish story here and there's a kind of universal story here but i think it's weakening dramatically well i certainly hope so leslie you talked about habitus and jerry i think you said you called it um, learned helplessness yeah um so apparently, as Scots, we really are quite pathetic. Um, how, how can we learn to grow up here and learn to love ourselves, Leslie? Well, I, I don't think Scots are pathetic in the least, actually. Nope. Um, absolutely the reverse. Uh, it strikes me, I mean, the, the book is really quite full of a lot of stories of incredibly impressive Scots who've struggled against all the odds and officialdom and politicians to try to save their communities. Now, in most functioning democracies, you don't need to be a hero to do that. You just need to be a citizen. You just need to be a citizen who turns out votes and takes part in a proper functioning democracy. In Scotland, you need to be a hero. So, you know, the people who, who took eight years to buy the island of eggs so they could simply issue 37 leases to people who were tenants? Yeah, that's what you had to do to be able to issue a lease. You had to say, do nothing else with your life for eight years pretty well and, and tackle the most negative voice of them all, not any of the external ones, this one. The one that's keeping saying inside, this is the way, this is as good as it's going to get. Who do you think you are trying to change it? And that voice, I don't think, uh, comes from anything mythological. It comes from um, an archaic knowledge of powerlessness in a top-down society where an elite of Scots abused other Scots. And that's the truth. Feel free to applaud at any time. Um, that's, that's now, I mean, the, the situation, particularly with housing, is just shocking beyond words. If you start to look at any of our housing heritage, one that comes to mind most quickly is that in the late 1880s, I think, there were five toilets in Dundee and three of them were in hotels. Now, you know, the, the, the death rate in the Cowgate here in Edinburgh was unbelievable because they were single ends. If you look at, compare that to Merkiston, where people had two or three bedroomed houses, um, two roomed houses rather, um, there was about a double to treble uh, expect life expectancy. And the, the rate in which uh, the Scots were overcrowded was absolutely unbelievable. 
It was something like 20 times more overcrowding in Glasgow than London. So for any of you who've read Angela's Ashes, you know, Scotland was right up there in terms of utterly, utterly appalling life-shortening circumstances of living, and the vast majority of landlords were Scots. So, you know, there's difficulties in all of that, in learning through what your parents have taught you, through what their grandparents taught them, that we have had um, centuries of appalling housing conditions um, prior to industrialization. Most people lived on the land. If they stayed in the same place for six months, that was exceptional. And a very high proportion of men never lived with their families. They stayed in the bothies, which were intended for single men, because there was no land available to let them build cottages of their own. So, Leslie, now, we, you, we've you... basically bought this over centuries. Don't you think that might have a small impact on our confidence levels and our expectations? I think we're living out the history we have not acknowledged. So, you, Leslie, there's obviously... Um, uh, 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 it's a time for change in, the, in that case. Then, So you said change will only come when people can visualise things being otherwise. I wonder, Jerry, do you think we're there yet? Do you think we're starting to visualise that? You, you hinted yes, at that? Yes, no, absolutely. But the, just to absolutely chime with Leslie, the, the wider context of us, and I, I put this in the book, Britain never became a fully-fledged political democracy. That's a fundamental. Look at this country. Look at the archaic institutions of it. The wars, the fact if you die in Cornwall and don't leave a will, where does your money go? The Duchy of Cornwall. There's one word for that. Feudalism. He rakes in money every year from people who have forgotten to make a will. But then there's our conceit that we think somehow we are different. Leslie's absolutely right. The elite power in Scotland, Scotland never became a democracy because of when we came into the Union, when we created the Union, uh, rather... Uh, our civil society that preserved our autonomy was an elite autonomy done to the people of Scotland. You know, we used to talk in school about the law, the kirk um, and education. Those were elites that did things to us and that collective memory of Scot Scotland that they shared in them wasn't, wasn't a one of a democratic uh, uh, practice. And I think that this, this, is, this is why this debate is interesting. This debate is about a Scotland changing the kind of terrain, the landscape, who speaks. And we have a whole set of issues going on about how do people have vessels that they, that they, they know are their own when we don't trust political parties, trade unions are in retreat, and churches are, are in retreat as well. Church of Scotland on figures will disappear in 30 years. You know, it was a terror when it ran Scotland. It's a kind of benign, nice force now when it's a wee kind of like humble body, but and that's going to be a loss for us. And so it's how... There's been vessels created in this referendum of, of people doing change, talking. It's how we create sustainable vessels that we, that we can, can inhabit and own. And really, in a way, it's then taken that argument about how do we imagine a different Scotland? Because it's going to be, you know, there's no country in the world a utopia, but we can do better than this. We can challenge elite power and we can, like, you know, engage in putting our actions and our words together a bit better. Okay. Now, I'm going to put this question to both of you, but perhaps you first, Leslie. You both bemoaned the, uh, the political disconnection, the lack of control, influence, and engagement of the populace. In the absence of the brilliant Get the Vote Out programme, what do you think we can do to improve it, for instance, to get an improved turnout for this referendum? 
Well, I think this referendum will see itself right because here's the, you know, we're expecting something around 80% as a turnout, which will actually make history in Britain, never mind Scotland, you know. Um, and, and I think the reason is because power is an aphrodisiac, actually. And uh, in that moment, in those 10 hours or whatever on September the 18th, the Scots will have actual power to, to, to make their, ver their voices heard and have something happen the next day without any intermediaries, without anybody gainsaying it, without political parties footering around in the middle of it all. It's us deciding on something. So that's an extraordinary amount of power. And hey, presto, when you give people real power in a vote, they turn out, heavens to Betsy. When you give them um, the kind of options that people have at the moment, which um, are, let's take local, local government. This is the one that is the most puzzling. Um, we have a turnout the last time round of 38% in Scotland, which is rubbish. But because England's turnout was 30, 32%, we all think resulta mundo, right? <laughs> now, you know, it's rubbish. The European average is 70% turnout, and the Nordic turnouts are around 80% without compulsion. And I would suggest the reason is because our councils are the largest in Europe. They are enormous. Um, the average size of council, let's say, in Germany, which is a hugely vibrant, successful country, created that way, actually, by British civil servants in the main after the last World War, when they went in to make sure that power wasn't allowed to agglomerate in one central command anymore. Um, the average municipality in Germany has 8,000 people. The average municipality council in Scotland has 115,000. The average size of a municipality in Germany is 15 square kilometers. The average size of a council in, in Scotland is 990 square kilometers. The average number of people who stand for something for election in Norway is one in 80. In Scotland, it's one in 2,000. As you can sense, I could go on. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, once you get used to this template of largeness, in which decision-making is always done by people who are not present in the organic communities people inhabit, you're done for after that, because after that you must have political parties brought in because they're the only way to differentiate candidate A from B. You don't know who half of them are anyway, and you are disempowered. Um, we're flaring off the energy of people in Scotland like we used to flare gas off oil rigs as if it didn't matter. And it's the only thing, it's the only thing that matters in the end, but we haven't got anything, any municipal small community curried in around enough units of thing, small enough to have that up. And that's the problem for me here, because actually politicians don't trust us to run a proverbial in the proverbial. And if we can't, we're the only people in Northern Europe who can it. Okay, uh, right. Like, can I throw that over to you then, Jerry? Do you yeah. believe that people are becoming more engaged? That we are get, getting all high on this aphrodisiac? Well, yes, yes, to an extent. It's not an aphrodisiac. I also don't buy the sovereignty argument. Um, sovereignty is a kind of abstract um, that originally comes from God, remember, in terms of political science. So it's a really dodgy, absolutist concept. Um, but let's, 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 let's talk through a second. The, the turnout will be high. The turnout 
I don't think we'll be 80% because the last turnout at 80% plus was 1951, uh, which is in Scotland, which was thus two generations ago. Highest turnout actually in the Euro in, in, uh, UK, 81%. Uh, the Northern Irish referendum of 1998, which tells you when people feel something is at stake, despite the, the prism they've got to get through that they're offered by the politicians, they actually turn out. And what you're having here is this is a debate that's about you know, potential future Scotlands. The politicians, the yes offer and the no offer, are narrow, problematic continuity and, and change. And then that is then paraded in the media uh, mainstream media in a way that is actually, you think, deliberately trying to turn people off. We know from the opinion polls it will be a high turnout. There's um, a book, my book's in a series I've then commissioned other people to do research on uh, unexplored areas of Scotland, like, you know, is there a future for Scotch men, you know, um, like things like that. And, uh, and, and how, how do we get out of cultural miserableism? Um, and the one coming out next Friday is on the subject, the ter a term I invented called the Missing Scotland, which is the people who haven't voted for a generation. And so it's with Electoral Reform Society um, Scotland. And what we did is we ran proper focus groups of non-voters in Glasgow and Dundee. And what is fascinating is those people said all the things you'd expect to hear about politicians. They, they, they don't represent us, they're not like us. You know, much worse in terms of words. A lot of swearing was involved. <laughs> and then they said to practically a man and a woman with only two exceptions in those three groups, the referendum is different. We will vote in the referendum. And what I think is fascinating is people are going to come, like in the way some people find it difficult to go to the theatre, you know, if you, uh, if you haven't been to the theatre before and you go the first time, or going into a gay bar or something like that, crossing into a forbidden, unknown territory. How are some of those people going to get to the polling stations to know how to vote? Because we haven't done civic education. It's just been missing from our lives. And I think some of that vote isn't going to turn out because people are going to be scared, unsure, too busy, forget. But the turnout is going to be high. And actually, because I'm a Democrat, I think it's more significant than the result. Because if you have a, 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 voters get more and more older and actually older than the, the electorate, the people who don't turn out, it becomes about council tax freezes and things like that. If the poorer, relatively younger Scotland turns out, we can shift politics to not being about things like, you know, the council tax freeze, which, you know, isn't actually the big question facing us. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? I've got about 50 fantastic questions in here for our, bo for our authors, but I think it's only fair to give the audience a chance. We've, we've not got a lot of time left. So I think we can turn the lights up a wee bitty. And anyone who would like to uh, raise their hand, uh, that gentleman there with the black um, jacket on will be our first speaker. Oh, there's got to be some women. Come on, yeah, girls. Exactly. Come on, ladies. Yeah. Uh, I, I left Labour for the Green Party because it was following just the agenda of the right wing down south and they th think that they've got to tackle Tories by out-Torying them. Will independence change a Scottish Labour Party here? And who's that, who's that to? Well, mainly to uh, Jerry. Jerry. Um, well, yes, yes to an extent, because the Scottish Labour Party that exists is the Scottish Labour Party you see before you in this referendum, the one that won't talk about mm. the kind of Scotland we want to live in. It's a debate, they said, about the narrow constitutional issue. If, if we vote for independence, the dynamics of Scotland and Scottish politics change because we don't have that toxic kind of like uh, Dutch auction to the right 
that is that is UK stroke English politics. We don't have, even though we have a UKIP MEP, it isn't you know heading towards uh, the fact Britain Britain is moving geopolitically away away from Europe, whatever the referendum uh, on on Europe w will be. But it allows us a chance to do something different, and it allows voices to the Scottish Labour Party and other left voices and other radical voices to to emerge. But at the moment, you know, it's it's. I mean, there is an argument that if we vote for independence, the Scottish Labour Party is born the next day. I saw someone saying that uh, this morning. But it will, won't be. It won't be a Nirvana. It won't be a completely Nordic society. We won't become the social democrats of our dreams uh, the next day. But there is a chance of when Ed Miliband says, "I'm going to be harder than Osborne and Cameron on welfare," that we could just have a different kind of Labour Party that doesn't have to do that kind of ugly populist politics. Thank you both very much. Um, I'm interested because for the first time in a very long time, Leslie, a line in your book actually stopped me breathing, which isn't good, but it is good. Because what I read was Scottish women don't talk back in public. And it's huge. Um, and I'm picking up a little bit about what Jerry said about having a role for Scottish men. Yeah. And I'd, I'd quite like to hear your view about Scottish women do not talk back in public, but actually there's something going on about how Scottish people step up and make themselves heard. Mm. Uh, well, there's a lot, yeah. Uh, I mean, this may seem ludicrous because there's obviously some very mouthy women in Scotland, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a set of them. And actually, as, as I often was thinking about this, um, I, I would think about this, though, because many of us have been broadcasters. And actually, there was a stage where I was on the wireless, and I was thinking about this because actually my job was actually to connect the thinking of great men. I was a valve. <laughs> a female valve. <laughs> and, you know, because actually what, what it should be, there should be, you know, it's strange that there are so many women in Scottish broadcasting. There's all the Kirsties, um, there's Ruth Wisher, there's Sheena MacDonald, there's, you know, we could go on and on forever how many women there are. And I think that's because it's like the woman-female bouncer phenomenon. You know, women are not threatening to guys' egos, so we can go in and kind of try to connect guys who just do the Clint Eastwood thing. I'm not showing any emotion here, because if I do, you'll know what I'm thinking. Then I'll have lost, and the game's a bogey. So, you know, come on if you think you're hard enough, doll. I might just give a wee slip away. Right, that's, you know, there's a tenet of that going on in it. And there was a point where I began to think about that, and I thought, you know, I just don't want to spend the rest of my life being a shuttlecock between, you know, guys who will fundamentally not speak to one another. And in any case, look at a lot of these women. I mean, Kirsty Wark, for example, fantastic businesswoman. She could have been running anything. She didn't need to be a broadcaster. Yeah. I'm not a broadcaster now. Miraculously, I'm still on the planet, you know, being able to do other things. And I think lots of women in Scotland have been effectively driven into becoming um, the sort of almost facilitators of a grunting male populace <laughs> who will not speak to each other. Now, that is, um, to, to put it strongly, although I see a few men laughing, but dear knows what that might denote. Um, and I think anything that creates a sort of you know, situation where there's a like our modern apprenticeships, for example, engineering, 98% male, caring, 98% women. 
That's not what I discover in life, these kind of you know, absolute contrasts. Neither is it within the world of power and the way it's played out. So you think there's power in the hands of women because there's a lot of women talking and on the media. Actually, who are they interviewing? Who holds the power? They're not even people who are ever interviewed. That was when the real penny dropped. I haven't interviewed a really powerful person in my life because they're too smart. They sit behind all their offices here in Edinburgh. You don't even know their names. Right, well, let's move on and get another question. Um, for, um, this, this lady here in the white. And then I'll take another gentleman. I'm going to say something extremely positive. As a Mousy woman, I love seeing this. And I would like your opinion of my decision. If you had asked me six months ago, even four months ago, what I would do if we got a no vote, I would have said in no uncertain terms, I would never stay here. Because it's I, 50 years I have fought and fought to get a Scottish independence. I've changed my mind. I'm staying. And it's something to do with the atmosphere. I know everybody says it's awful and the, the on, you're on the internet and people say terrible things. And I must admit that in the last week I just do not listen to any of the BBC or any of the media. And that, that does help. It does help. But I'd just like you to address that because there was a lot of feeling from people like me that having spent their lives, that they would then just abandon. But I know, I, I do like the Scots people, but I love the land of Scotland. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you could both just give a very quick response to that, please. Yeah, I'm with you. I would be heartbroken not to see Scotland. And I mean, people I love live here, but I've thought of leaving plenty of times. Why, am I, why did I learn Norwegian? And I'm serious. You know, I think there's a point at which you have to accept you have one life and you're hitting your head off a brick wall. And I've tried very hard in this country and felt I've got relatively not very far. I don't mean for me personally, I mean for the causes that I've advocated. Um, so, you know, if there was a no vote, it would take some getting over. Um, and yes, I, you know, I still do semi-speak Norwegian and there is a kind of yeah. country over there that's waving. But the land, you're right, actually, apart from anything else, the land is heartbreakingly connected. And Jerry, if you could just give us a quick um, response to that, please. Yeah, I just have to say, I thought the question about uh, women was, 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 was poignant and absolutely apt and is one of the core that you, you can practice understand all Scotland through gender, not quite because there's never a silver bullet. Um, and, and we need to hear from Scottish men talking as men and reflecting and challenging other men because they're just, you know, no dominant culture ever talks about itself because the dominant culture, that's the story of like Protestantism, that's the story of Glasgow Rangers football club before it imploded. I think your, your point, I, I think in a way we're already independent about how we think um, of ourselves and, and that's, that's a big bonus and a challenge because we're not formally independent. Indeed my PhD, you know, Leslie mentioned, was called after the great Donna Summer single, um, which actually is a cover version, it was called State of Independence because the, we, we have a mindset that is increasingly an autonomous public life and then it rubs up against some of the issues we've been talking about and some of the silences and the omissions and the issue of the problem with Britain and by that I mean not the problem of the people in Britain but the problem of uh, British politics and the British uh, state. 
Okay, um, I'm sorry to say we're going to have to leave it there. I've run out of time. There is a great opportunity for you to have a chat with both of our authors next door in the signing uh, tent. Um, and if you give us a second as we leave, and then you can come through. But for the moment, please, can I ask you to join me in thanking both um, Jerry Hassan and Leslie Riddle. Thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.